Billy Graham used to always say, in fact, he still says it, that the will of God will never take you where the grace of God cannot lead you. Wherever God will send you, God will give you the strength, the ability, the wherewithal to carry out His plan for your life. And God works out His will through providence. That is, He divinely sets up circumstances in our lives. It's not always dramatically that we know the will of God. Sometimes it's very simply. But one thing is certain. When we submit to God's plan and God's will, when we don't have an attitude of, I want it my way, when we're willing to lay down our own agenda and submit ourselves in simple trust to the Lord, it's always the best way. Remember the show, If You Are This Old, Father Knows Best, which came out in the 60s, the black and white. And, uh, you know, the, the theme of it is that we all blow it. Mom kind of blows it. The kids blow it. But Father knows best. Well, spiritually, that's true. Our Heavenly Father, as the first spiritual law says of the four spiritual laws, God loves us and has a wonderful plan for our lives. Every time we're submitted to that plan, it's wonderful. Every time we're not submitted to that plan, it is a major drag. Total frustration. And actually, that's what this chapter kind of centers around in several portions of the rest of the book of Acts is guidance, knowing the will of God. Of course, we've covered that a few places in the past in this chapter or in this book. But guidance, if we were to survey everyone in this room, is probably on the top three requests of your life's list. I want to know the will of God. I want to be guided by God. Now, you're not alone. Everybody in the world wants some sort of guidance. Even unbelievers want guidance. That's why they search horoscopes, tarot cards, Ouija boards, fortune tellers. They'd like to have some kind of direction. Well, the Christian has the direction of the Holy Spirit of God living within him. This chapter is a chapter that tells us different ways that God providentially moves to perform His will. We're going to read the first ten verses tonight, so let's just go through it. Then he, that is Paul, came to Derbe and Lystra. And behold, a certain disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a certain Jewish woman who believed, but his father was Greek. He was well spoken of by the brethren who were at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted to have him go on with him. And he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in that region. For they all knew that his father was Greek. And as they went through the cities, they delivered to them the decrees to keep, which were determined by the apostles and the elders at Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and increased in number daily. And when they had gone through Fergian, the region of Galatia, they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia. And after they had come to Mysia, they tried to go to Bithynia, but the Spirit did not permit them. So passing to Mysia, they came down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia stood and pleaded with him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. Now after he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go to Macedonia, concluding that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel to them. A few beginning remarks about the way God guides. God is more anxious to guide you than you are to be guided. I say that just to take a little of the pressure off. We often run around like little chickens with our heads cut off, frantic, 
that we're not being led by God when all of the time we want to be. Well, if your heart is to be led by the Lord and you're trusting in Him, relax. Don't sweat it. I, I, I know Christians that are just, you know, I've been praying, I've been fasting, I've been talking, I wonder. Just relax. God, your Father, is more anxious to see you in the right place than you are even to be there. It's His desire to give you guidance and to show you His will. Right now in this auditorium, if I were to tell you, you're going to pick up on this as we go, that there are all sorts of different music right now in this room. There's rock. There's jazz. There's everything from... to And there's all sorts of pictures in this room. Good ones and bad ones. If you have the right receiver, you could pick up on it. If you could tune into the right frequency and you had the right apparatus to pick up the signal of that sound or of those pictures, you'd be able to receive them and get into them. God's voice is speaking. People say, God doesn't speak like He used to. Men don't listen like they used to. We're tuning into everything but being still and waiting on God and trying to tune into the frequency of God's voice. Many times we've just crowded out the voice of God from our lives, but God has a desire to speak to us if we'd only tune in. When it comes to guidance, you remember that God already gave to the disciples a general platform of His guidance. He said to the disciples, Jesus said, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. That's your program. That's your plan. Go for it. And so they went in faith to carry out the will of God because Jesus already gave them the format, the program. However, each step along the way required God's guidance as well. And you remember the early church? What did they rely on? Well, first of all, they relied on the Scriptures. Peter so often in the first few chapters of Acts where Peter is highlighted, quoted the Old Testament. He would say something and say, well, this is because it was written in Psalms. And men would say, why are you speaking in tongues? What is this? Peter said, this is that which was spoken of by the prophet Joel, who said in the last days, and he quotes Scripture. So everything they did was based upon the Word of God. But God also chose to speak and to guide in a variety of ways, through visions and dreams, which we're going to see tonight, through closing doors and opening other doors, through the circumstances that gelled together. And Chip said something before the study that bears repeating. There are no formulas. And so it is in guidance. You know, just when you think you've got it down. Okay, got the Word of God. Counsel from others. Got this, got that. God will just blow your mind and do something different. And God has that freedom. That's what's so God about God. He can do what He wants to do. And we need to give Him the freedom. Say, Lord, I... I've trusted you. I'm going in this direction. But you just have the freedom to totally blow my agenda out of the water. I'll just be your servant. Now, Paul and Silas in this chapter will be traveling together. Remember, Paul and Barnabas had a little rift. They had an argument and they split up. And now Paul is traveling with Silas from church to church, covering the same territory that he covered on his first trip. But this is now his second trip. He's going to all the churches that he established, strengthening the brethren. And I bet you, don't you, that some of those Christians in these places said, Hey, uh, Paul, where's Barnabas? What happened to him? How come you're not traveling with him anymore? 
How do you think Paul answered that? Well, he'd have to answer it honestly. Hey, we love each other, but we don't see eye to eye, all right? He's on a different team preaching the gospel somewhere else, and I'm preaching the gospel here. Now, that's not, I don't think, all that bad, because through their rift, God worked all things together, and they had two evangelistic teams working to do the work of the ministry. Even if you don't see eye to eye, it worked out good. Okay, God's will in the first few verses was concerning a person named Timothy. It says he came to Derby and Lystra, and behold, a certain disciple was there named Timothy. He was the son of a certain Jewish woman, woman who believed, but his father was Greek. He was well spoken of by the brethren who were at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted to have him go on with him. And he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in that region, for they all knew that his father was Greek. Now, a little background on Timothy. Timothy becomes, from this point on, throughout the rest of the ministry of Paul, very valuable to him. Timothy was the fruit of Paul's labors on his first missionary journey. You know, we will never realize, probably till we get to heaven, the effect of our lives upon other people. The effect of that witnessing at work. The effect of sharing with that person who's been in the occult. The effect of praying for a person. You might witness to a person and never see him again and find out, perhaps in heaven, that that person eventually came to know the Lord and that person led another person who led another person who led another person to the Lord. And you're going to say, Lord, thank you that I obeyed you and opened my mouth when you told me to do it. Well, Paul went out on his first missionary journey and it says when he came to Lystra and Derby, when they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch. Well, Timothy was among them. In the book of 1 Timothy, Paul says that Timothy was my own son in the Lord, a spiritual disciple of Paul the Apostle. And he had a godly heritage. If you look in verse 1, it says he was the son of a certain Jewish woman who believed. In other words, she was Jewish who came to faith in Jesus Christ. She was a completed Jew. Now, for some reason, Jewish people today don't think that that verse is possible. They say, you can be Jewish or you can be a Christian, but you can't be a Jewish person who believes in Jesus Christ as the Messiah. All of a sudden, if you believe in the fulfillment of Jewish prophecy, you're not a Jew anymore. You've crossed the line from Judaism to Christianity. Well... And the Scripture was full of people who were Jews who believed in what the prophets had told them. Well, that's the heritage of uh, Timothy. His mother was Jewish. His father was Greek. His mother believed. Paul, when he wrote to Timothy, said, When I call to remembrance the genuine faith that is in you, which dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded that is in you also. He grew up in a godly home. No doubt, his grandmother was a devout Jewish woman who taught him the Word of God. And you know, when Jewish people raise their kids, their kids come out knowing the Bible. Because they, from early on, give them portions of the Word of God to memorize by song. So that when a young Jewish boy or girl gets to be about 12, 13, 14 years old, they know a chunk of the Word of God. The parents are taught to diligently train their children. Well, that was his heritage. And what an opportunity that you and I have as parents to train our children in the Lord. You know, the Bible says that we are to train our children. It doesn't say, parents, your Sunday school will train your children in the Lord. Parents, Christian schools will do it all. No. Parents, 
diligently teach these things, these precepts to your children all the days of their lives. You do it. And I think one of the greatest, if not the greatest thing in all of the world would be to personally pray with your son or daughter into the kingdom of God. To pray with them to receive Christ later on. Volitionally. To bring them to faith. That to me would be exciting. And he had that background. Eunice and Lois. Also, Timothy loved the Bible. He was taught it. Again, I read from the book of Timothy. You must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them, so that from childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation. Timothy also was gifted as an evangelist. For Paul writes to Timothy and says, Now you continue to do the work of an evangelist, Timothy. You've been gifted at it. Stick with it. He was sent to the Corinthian church to mop up the backsliding mess that had happened. He was sent to the Thessalonians because he was one who would encourage the brethren. In fact, of all the people that Paul ministered with, he had Silas, he had Barnabas, he had Luke, he had several others, it seems that Timothy was most, not most, most. That's more and most as a contraction, by the way. It's a new word now in the dictionary, most. Timothy was more like-minded than anyone else. In fact, when he would send Timothy, he would write in his letters, For I have no man who is like-minded who will naturally care for your state except Timothy. You know, it is really a blessing when God develops a team in the ministry. In any ministry. People who can serve the Lord together. The Scripture is filled with people who just hit it off. Not always at first. They had to be molded into it, but they were in some kind of a team serving the Lord. David and Jonathan. Now they hit it off right at the beginning. Jonathan saw David, fell in love with his heart. David met Jonathan. They exchanged their love. They exchanged gifts. They became close friends. And it lasted throughout a lifetime. What about Elijah and Gehazi, the servant of Elijah? They were always traveling together, sharing in the ministry. Peter, James, and John, the inner circle. Aquila and Priscilla, the husband and wife team in the book of Acts. Those dramatic teams where God puts people together and they serve them in a full-time capacity. And there are times when people just don't hit it off. And you try for a while, you're in the ministry together for a while, but your vision isn't the same. And you have to part company like Paul and Barnabas. But it's great when you have a guy like Paul and Timothy hanging out together. Look in verse 3. Paul wanted to have, excuse me, Paul wanted to have him. Paul wanted... I just um, got confused here. I just washed my mouth. Can't do a thing with it. Paul wanted to have him go on with him and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in that region for they all knew that his father was Greek. Now, in reading this, you think, doesn't this contradict the previous chapter? For isn't the previous chapter filled with an argument between Paul and the people who were saying, you have to be circumcised and keep the law of Moses to be saved. And wasn't it Paul who stood up and said, you don't have to be circumcised and keep the law of Moses to be saved. Well, here, Paul wants to have Timothy circumcised before he goes on. Why? It's not a contradiction. And there's a beautiful lesson tucked into this. In chapter 15, the issue was salvation. You have to be circumcised to be saved. Paul says, no, you don't. You just have to believe in Jesus to be saved. 
In this chapter, we're not dealing with salvation. We're dealing with service. We're dealing with ministering to Jewish people who wouldn't even listen to anyone who was uncircumcised. And so it was a matter of becoming all things to all men if by all means I might save some. That was the principle. So there was a liberty to go through this ritual, not for salvation. There was no spiritual merit in this. But so that Timothy could accompany him in speaking to Jewish audiences, Timothy would have an end. In 1 Corinthians 9, it says, For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win the more. To the Jews, I become a Jew, that I might win the Jews. To those under the law, as under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. To the weak, I become as weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. Now I do this for the gospel's sake. There is a principle in Scripture that we become all things to all men that we might save them. Now, don't misapply this. I've heard this often misquoted. Well, brother, how come you were at the bar slamming a few cores the other night? Well, because I don't want to become all things to all men. I want to witness to the drunk, so I just become drunk that I might win. No, you don't. That's compromising on a spiritual issue. There are certain things that are out and out prohibited by the Bible. You don't compromise spiritual values. But Paul was able to speak the Jewish talk to those who were Jewish. That was his background. When he was speaking with someone weak, he didn't exalt himself or puff himself up and say, poor little weak person, I'm a strong person. He got down to their level and shared with them. And so there's a principle here of becoming all things to all men. I think you could say that about music. Or about methods of preaching the gospel. You wouldn't go into a convalescent home, say, and bring Striper to have a concert. Nor would you take a gospel barbershop quartet down to a high school and expect to get great results. The best thing is to package the gospel, which never changes and never compromises, in ways that would be most suitable to those you were sharing with. And so Paul figured that this was a spiritual kind of a principle that he could translate into his relationship with Timothy. Even as today there are Messianic believers who meet on Saturday and keep many of the Old Testament services and holy days, not to be spiritual, but for their rootedness and to become all things to all men. For instance, I'll do a funeral sometimes and... I've done a couple funerals at the Catholic Church. In the Catholic Church, when I'm sharing the gospel and people are listening and I get the chance to share Jesus, say, at a funeral, when everybody kneels, I kneel. I don't have to, but I'm not going to stand up and go, nope, I'm not going to kneel. I would stick out like a sore thumb. I do anyway, but that would be even worse. And so I want to as much as possible fit in to what God might be doing in that place, that people might come to know Christ. Paul said to the Romans, Resolve this, that you live peaceably with all men, not to put a stumbling block or a cause to fall in our brother's way. Now, a wise spiritual leader will know when to take a dogmatic stand and not compromise and to know when to apply certain things in certain situations and to make that kind of a compromise. What I want you to look at is verse 2. 
he was well spoken of by the brethren who were at Lystra and Iconium. This gives a little bit of an insight into one of the ways that we can all know or have confirmed the will of God in our lives. Paul obviously saw Timothy. He led him to the Lord. He saw that he'd been growing. And others came along and said, Paul, Timothy has been such an inspiration to our church. Ever since he came to faith, he's been shooting up like a weed. He's been growing, influencing others, leading people to Christ. He's a great guy. And so the will of God was confirmed by the counsel of other people as they confirmed it to him. You and I should, in trying to discern what God's will for our life is, in some degree rely upon the counsel of other people who know Christ. Now, you don't want to go too far with this, but you want to go far enough with it. When it comes to spiritual issues, or when it comes to issues in the church that I don't know what to do, I have a group of people that I can go to. I have a group of people here locally. I have a group of people all over the country that can be spiritual advisors. Hey, I don't know what to do on this. I think this is what God would have me do, but I'm unclear. I'm uncertain. And I can have the will of God confirmed by other people. In Acts chapter 15, we are told that we should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. They had a question. Should you be circumcised in order to be saved? No, you shouldn't be. And so there was an argument. Paul said, let's go to Jerusalem. Let's discuss it with spiritual authority. Let's kick it around and get counsel. You want to be careful on this because the problem that you and I often have when we want to know the will of God is we say we want to know the will of God, but we kind of have in mind what we want and we don't want that upset. And so we'll often find people that will tell us what we want to hear. We often find people that we know will gain a sympathetic ear with and we say, hey, I've been thinking about doing this. Do you agree with me? Oh, well, sure. Great. Thank you. God bless you. That's all I wanted to know. And that's dangerous. Secondly, when you get counsel from other people, don't take it as being ex-cathedra, that God has spoken His perfect will to that person, and that's the be-all, end-all of it. You need to balance that out. You need to make sure that person's walking in the Lord. There are people in counseling, it happens all the time, that want you to make their decisions for them. Hey, just tell me what, what I ought to do. Whatever you say, I'll do. That's God's will for my life. I say, no way, Jose. I won't be saddled with that responsibility. And any good counselor will always point a person back to relying upon Christ, not the counselor. As so often happens in counseling situations, a therapeutic relationship starts getting developed. Whereas the counselee comes into the counselor, they strike up a relationship, and you see me again next week. And then next week, and then next week. And pretty soon, the counselee feels so comfortable, but uncomfortable doing anything at all unless I check with my counselor. But a good counselor will want to wean a person to dependence upon the Lord, not dependence upon the counselor. And so be careful when you seek the counsel of others that, number one, you don't find someone who will just tell you what you want to hear, and number two, that you don't let them make the decision for you, but that you stand before God and make your own decision. And always weigh any counsel with the Word of God. Any counsel from anyone who gives you a spiritual principle. Don't take it, period. Match it with the Scriptures. Paul the Apostle 
never placed himself outside the authority of Scripture. When he was traveling, in fact, we're going to read it in the book of Acts, he came to a group called the Bereans. And he remarked that the Bereans were more noble or fair-minded than those in Thessalonica, the city that he had just traveled from. Because in Berea, they received the Word of God gladly, but searched the Scriptures daily to see if these things be so. I love that. They said, oh, isn't that a great study Paul the Apostle gave? Yep, but let's go home and check it with the Word. And Paul commended them for doing it. And I would recommend strongly that when anybody gives you a Bible study, a bit of information, as much as possible, back it up with the Scripture. All right. That was God's will concerning a person. It was confirmed by other people. Let's look at God's will concerning a place. I like this part. Verse 6, Now when they had gone through Phrygia and the region of Galatia, they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia. After they had gone to Mysia, they tried to go to Bithynia, all these strange names, but the Spirit did not permit them. So passing by Mysia, they came to Troas. And if you were to have a conversation with them and say, Paul, what's God's will for your life? You know what he'd say? Say, I don't know. Well, what? Paul, the apostle, the great man of God? You don't know the will of God for your life? No, I don't. All he knew is that the Holy Spirit was leading somehow, saying no mostly instead of yes at this point, and that he was waiting. But at this point, he didn't have any direction other than he tried to go a few places and it didn't work. Paul, what's God's will? I don't know. I'm, I'm on hold, man. My ears are open. God's got my attention. I'm waiting for further information, but I don't have it yet. And then we read in the next couple of verses, verses 9 and 10, where the uh, answer comes through. But it says in verse 6, When they had gone through Phrygia, the region of Galatia, they were forbidden by the word of God to preach the word in Asia. Paul wanted to penetrate Asia like he did on the first trip. It was the center of Greek culture. It was a heavy population base. But the Holy Spirit had something else in mind. And then the next verse, Paul tries to go north into Bithynia. It was by the Black Sea, modern Turkey, had a huge population base as well. But the Holy Spirit said no. Now think about this. Every door so far, has it been open? Has it been open? Not one. God hasn't opened any doors yet. Though He tried to go different places, He was not allowed. How the Holy Spirit forbade Him is up to speculation. But He just couldn't get there. He tried. He tried, and it wouldn't work. And right now, he's on a holding pattern. And you think, what a bummer. Here's a guy who wants to serve God and preach the gospel. And there's a closed door. Oh, it's one of the greatest blessings. In fact, it's the greatest blessing for you and me. Because where the Holy Spirit directed him, made sure that he eventually went to Rome, and the gospel was able to get throughout all the world. So God knew exactly what he was doing. Now, a couple things about Paul. Paul the Apostle, and I can relate to him, had by nature a very strong will. Which can be good and it can be bad. There can be a drawback to people who are very strong-willed. Because though they can often tough it up, endure and persevere, God often has to go to severe methods to guide them. 
they're not always just open. They're just going in one direction. And instead of an open door, it's like, boosh, oh, ouch. Mm, that's not the direction. Try that way. And pretty soon you have warts all over your head. Jonah was like that. Remember Jonah? He was very strong-willed. God tried the first approach. Jonah, the word of the Lord came to him, go to Nineveh and preach against it. I'm giving you a gospel commission. You're now in the full-time ministry. Did Jonah go, oh, thank you, Lord. Yes, I'll obey. No, he went the opposite direction. Instead of going a few hundred miles to Nineveh, he went 2,000 miles the opposite direction. All right? He's stubborn. What did God do? It says, so God sent a great wind and a great tempest on the sea. And that boat started shaking. And Jonah was crashed sawing logs at the bottom of the boat. And everybody else on board was praying to his own God. And finally they woke up Jonah and said, don't you care that we're perishing? Pray! Maybe your God will answer your prayers. And they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. And Jonah confessed, hey, this is my fault, guys. I'm running from God. Well, what do you want us to do? Throw me overboard. Throw you overboard? Jonah, is it now the time to repent? Pray to God? Throw me overboard. Hey, that's stubborn. Why didn't he just say, God, I got the message. I repent. I'll go to Nineveh. Throw me overboard. So they threw him overboard. Did God say, well, I tried? No. He sent a more severe method. For it says, and the Lord prepared a great fish to swallow Jonah. First it was, go to Nineveh. No. Then it was a wind. Throw me overboard. Then God sent a fish to swallow him. And then chapter 2 of Jonah says, and then Jonah prayed unto the Lord. I love it. God wouldn't let that meathead go. Listen, if you want to go to fisticuffs with God, He can take you, and He will. And God loves you too much to let you go and do your own thing. You might get away with something for a while, but when God has His hand on your life, God won't let you go far. And if you want to fight with Him, all right. He'll take you on, but one day your arm's going to be behind your back and go, Uncle! And after Jonah prayed and got barfed up on the land, finally he went to Nineveh and did God's will. Well, Paul wasn't quite like Jonah. He wanted to do the will of God, but he also was very strong-willed. And God had to use, instead of open doors, he used closed doors. We don't often think about that when it comes to how does God guide. Here's one of the principal methods. Closed doors. He shuts down every avenue and opportunity until you're in a place where you go, all right, all right, I tried. I tried to serve you. I tried to witness I tried this direction. Now what do you want me to do? I'm open. And God's saying, good, I've been wanting to get you there for a long time. Now you're tuning into my frequency. And it was through these closed doors that God is going to move Paul the Apostle. I've seen this happen. I've seen a guy that God called into the ministry. However, he was very content at his job. He got a raise. He loved working where he was working. And he just decided, you know, I, I'm just going to stay right here as long as I can sit on this thing. Walked into the office one day. 
And uh, boss said, well, we have to lay off some people and you're top the list. Not that you did anything wrong. We just don't need you anymore. And from one day to the next, one day he was just enjoying himself. He wasn't seeking God's will in the ministry. The next day he was. God, God, God. Now listen, I'll do anything you want me to do. And when God got him to that place, God sent him off and used him. But sometimes God will back us into a corner and steal all the other options, close all the doors. It's sort of like a Red Sea effect. Remember the Israelites in the Old Testament? They were moving where God told them to go, and they go up to a sea. Okay, we go where you lead us, but there's just a sea here. Now what, God? There's mountains on this side. There's mountains on that side. Well, let's just go back. And they turn around. The Egyptians are closing them in. They're in a perfect trap. God trapped them on purpose. You know why? So that God could show that He could provide a way where there was no way. God opened up the sea. And then God led them through the sea. And sometimes God puts us into a box, a cul-de-sac, where we don't know what He's going to do until we finally say, all right, yours is the next move. I can't do anything, but I trust in you. And then God will often move at that point. The Scripture says the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord, and he delights in his way. I want to rephrase that without destroying the Scripture, but it's a principle in the Scripture, though not a verse. Yes, the steps of a righteous man are ordered by the Lord, but the stops of a righteous man are also ordered by the Lord. God knows when to put a red light in your life and not let you go any further. So first of all, See what natural circumstances God has surrounded your life with. When you want to know His will, look what's around. See what God has put in front of you, what doors God has closed, what options are left. Be careful, however, again, that we don't read everything as a sign from God. Some people are just sign seekers. Well, maybe that's a sign. I ran out of gas on the freeway. could be a sign. Maybe it's just a sign that you should watch your gas gauge and put gas in it every day. So you don't have to read everything necessarily as a sign, but you want to be open, open to the circumstances that God would put in your life and go from there. Because the circumstances alone, even closed situations, don't reveal totally the will of God. When I was first going to move to Albuquerque, I sent out 30 to 40 resumes. I didn't hear one. Response. I was putting out job applications and resumes and radiology, x-ray, all the way from Berlin. I didn't even know what Berlin was. I just read it in a phone book. I sent it to Berlin, Albuquerque, Santa Fe. I figured somebody will bite. Not one person for months. No one wrote me. Now, I could have said, fine. I tried. Now, I said, you know what? God put something on my heart. I'm going to go there. I'm going to knock on all these doors. Something's bound to open up. And when I did that, it did. And so God just wanted to push me a little bit further uh, in that direction. But God is big enough. And again, I want to just set your mind at ease. God's big enough to open doors for you and to close doors and to put you in situations. God's hands are not tied. God is big enough and certainly He desires to move you. We don't always like this. We would rather God guide us by saying, Go to Africa. We like that. We can hang with that. It's miraculous. Sign in the sky, voice. All right. That's your will. But when something happens where you lose control, you don't like that. 
When something happens where you think that's the direction I'm supposed to go in and you slam against a wall and you no longer control the situation and you have to take your little hands off of it, oh, we wince at that. We don't like that. But that's the way sometimes God will want to guide us. Do you know why Paul the Apostle first preached the gospel in Galatia? Read the book of Galatians sometime. I know you have most of you, but it tells you in there. He says, because I was physically sick, that was why I preached the Word of God to you at first. I got hung up there. I got flat on my back. And as I was flat on my back, I preached the gospel. That's what he says in the book of Galatians. Now, that doesn't sit well with some of you, perhaps, especially if you believe that God would never will someone to have an adverse circumstance like illness occur to them. But God can often move that way, and He often does. Paul said it happened to him. He was flat on his back, and then he preached the gospel. He said, you know that because of physical infirmity, I preached the gospel to you at first. David said, before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I obey your word. When Moses stood before Pharaoh and God commissioned him to go, Moses said, God, I can't go. I'm not eloquent. I don't have the gift of gab. God said, I will be with your mouth. And then God said this, Who gave man his mouth? Who makes him deaf or dumb? Who gives him sight or makes him blind? Is it not I, the Lord? I bring that to your attention for this reason. I think God is pretty tired of hearing from some people what He can and can't do. God couldn't ever let that happen. God can do what He wants to do. God is sovereign. And He's sovereign even above and beyond your theology of Him. And sometimes God, in His grace and sovereignty, will allow certain things to happen to us to discipline us, to teach us lessons, or to make our lives more fruitful. Ask Johnny Erickson who's a quadriplegic in a wheelchair today, if her life was more fruitful before the accident or after the accident, if she's had more effect getting the gospel out before the accident or after the accident, and she has said time and time again, I thank God for what happened to me. Not that I enjoy this situation, but the effect of my life. God has used me in greater capacity than He ever could before because I wouldn't let Him. And so, beautiful example of that here. Now down in verse 10... It says, well, let's look at verse 9. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia stood and pleaded with him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. Now after he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go to Macedonia, concluding that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel. And so all of a sudden there's a change. It says, not they, but we. It's the first time this occurs in the book of Acts. It says, God called us to preach the gospel to them, which indicates that Dr. Luke, who wrote the gospel, the book of Acts, joins the team of Paul and Silas and goes on with them. Therefore, sailing from Troas, we ran a straight course to Samanthrace, and the next day came to Neapolis, and on and on and on. And uh, we don't have enough time tonight, but uh, next time we'll discover the other way that God was guiding, and that was through a dramatic way of dreams and visions where a man from Macedonia came and spoke. And we don't have enough time to develop it tonight. But Jesus said this, My sheep hear my voice. My sheep hear my voice, and they're going to follow me. And just like there's lots of pictures and lots of sounds from the radio and so forth, in this room right now, 
And if we had the right receiver, we could pick up on it. God's voice is thundering for it. He wants to reveal His will to you. If you're open, you're sensitive, you have a biblical outlook, you're waiting on the Holy Spirit's guidance, don't worry. That God said, those who are seeking Him and trusting and relying on Him will not go astray. God will keep you. Let's have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I pray that we would have a balance in wanting to know Your will. That first of all, we'd have an earnest desire to find out what You want us to do. That we'd be searching the Scriptures. We'd be counseling with other believers. We'd be looking at the circumstances, the setups, the open doors, the closed doors of our lives. But Lord, that we wouldn't be more concerned with guidance as we are with the guide Himself. You said the Holy Spirit would live within us and that You'd guide us and lead us into all truth. And so, Lord, I pray that we would rest with the fact that the Holy Spirit, the guide, is within us, giving us His guidance as we rely upon You. I pray, Father, for everyone in this room that we would come to that place that Paul spoke about in Romans 12, that we would place our bodies before You as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to You, our reasonable service. And Lord, you would guide, you'd speak, you'd move. You can do it dramatically through a vision. You could do it simply through an impression made by the Word of God on our hearts concerning an issue. And Lord, thank you for how you express yourself to us. We want to give you the freedom to do that. In Jesus' name.